Well, if you wanted to be here this morning, you demonstrated it by making your way through the maze of police barricades and marathoners. It is Pasadena Marathon Sunday. It, once a year they do this. And uh, get, given that today's temperatures are going to get potentially to the triple digits, you have to ask, who's insane enough to run a marathon in Pasadena at this time of the year? And I think there's plenty, apparently, people who are in much better condition than yours truly, which, of course, isn't saying much. I just know that one of the cruelest things in the world for me when I was a cross-country runner in high school, and I know what you're saying. Really? Yes, that was half a person ago and many, many moons. I had my 30th class reunion was last night, and I obviously couldn't get to it because I had to work today and because it's expensive to travel by air. But, I mean, I ran cross-country with some friends who were meeting there. And then, of course, I look out and Beth was a cross-country runner. Anybody else a cross-country runner in high school? Look at that. Yes. Mrs. Chin. Um, so Elizabeth ran. A bunch of folks uh, have some experience in their lifetime of running. I had a, 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 an encounter once in a race where we had to run uh, down this road in the middle of a cornfield. And the road had just been tarred. And so it was fresh black top. And so it was a very hot day, uh, much like today. And on top of that, we were running for a good stretch, maybe a mile, on a piece of road that had just freshly been covered. And you could actually literally hear it crackling under you. So you felt like a piece of bacon, effectively, as you're running through this. And in my mind, I assumed that at the end of this thing was going to be the end of the race, that we were getting close to the end of the race, that we were almost there. And what a disturbing reality it was when we got to the end of this stretch and there was a one-mile-to-go marker. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had that happen where you thought you were going to be done sooner than you actually were. I had another encounter once where Carolyn and I were traveling to New Jersey um, from Florida with an infant in the car when Nick was a little boy. And uh, we were, you know, trying to save money because we didn't have money to stay in hotels. So I drove straight from Florida to New Jersey. And so we started rolling through the New Jersey turnpike at night. And it seemed like, I mean, in my mental state, that with each mile we went, we were literally getting further from our goal. And I remember seeing a sign where I thought it said 45 miles to our destination, and then a little bit later it was 55 miles. And I remember at 3 in the morning going, what is wrong with this state? And then I realized it was in New Jersey and it made sense to me. But uh, that is an amazingly difficult thing when somebody says, we're almost there and you're not almost there. One more little story. I was on a hike with youth. All right. Now, again, I'm not a hiker, especially since you know I became an adult and started having children. But uh, uh, this one single guy in our youth ministry back in Florida was a hiker. And he took us up in the mountains, and we started hiking towards this point on the horizon. And he said, we're almost there. And again, he was just stringing us along. He knew we weren't almost there, but he was trying to like encourage us. And all I got was frustrated because every time he said, we're almost there, I thought we were almost there. And by the time we got there, I wanted to kill him. And, and, and so I, I don't know what your experience is, but this emotion, I'd like you to harness this. Because when I read the last chapter of 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, I recognize there's a linguistic hiccup. Uh, I 
say that Paul, and this is pretty courageous of me, the Apostle Paul violates uh, homiletics rule number four. Now, for those of you who don't know, I teach preaching and uh, public speaking uh, and speech. Um, my march towards my graduate degree is so that I can uh, part-time while I'm planting a church and doing other things part-time. Um, I can teach communications. And one of the things that I always tell people is do not use the word finally unless you are really done. Now, I don't know if you've ever been with a person who was preaching a sermon and they went, and finally. And then like 15 minutes later, you're thinking, what in the world? I thought we were finally done because there's something about the word finally that's like a sign that says we're almost done. And people's clock starts ticking. So if I say, hey, listen, my final point is this. You guys, if I drop the word final anywhere in that conversation, your mental clock starts going. If you were raised Catholic, you know that, that there is a moment in the mass because you have from childhood, as I did, memorized each component of the mass. And you know, because it's liturgical, because it's the same each and every week, you know there are certain points where it's like, okay, we've got 20 minutes, we've got 10 minutes, and, and there's this great moment in, in, the, in the Catholic Mass where everybody gets up and shakes hands with each other. And the reason that's so exciting is because people realize we're 10 minutes from getting to go. I mean, you know, we're going to do communion, and then we're out of here. I mean, that's really, honestly, as a kid, this is what I'm thinking. Oh, it's time to be. And that's why you're so, could the peace of Christ be with you, and the peace of Christ be with you. And now you can start thinking about your afternoon. Now, as a kid, this is what your mindset is. I don't know if you were an adult, that might be your case. But this is kind of sort of how it was for me. I, I, as a little boy, I'm like, oh, good, we're almost done. The Apostle Paul, his first word of chapter 3 of Thessalonians is, finally. <laughs> and then he rambles incessantly. Now, this is not uncommon for preachers. D.A. Carson, who is a theologian I think a lot of, says that in this context... Finally is not necessarily a sign that the letter is about to close immediately, but marks a transition to a new topic. Not in English. So I, I say that because what I want to do today is I want to cover this third chapter of the second book of Thessalonians. But I can't, if we're going to go uh, verse by verse from verse 1 all the way to the end, I can't start with finally and have you all go, this is going to be short. So what I've got to do is, we're going to start with Paul's real final thoughts. All right, and then we're going to come back to the first five verses of this passage, which I think contain for us some real encouragement and challenge. So before we get to today's text, which is verses 1 through 5, let's look at Paul's four final, final thoughts. All right, and I'm going to, ram, I'm going to really go through these quickly, and they'll be on the screen behind me, and, uh, and you can follow along in your own Bible if you have it. But really, these thoughts are all under a re-admonition because in 1 Thessalonians, Paul had told them that there was a problem with people sitting around doing nothing and a problem apparently between the time he wrote his first letter to them and the time he wrote his second letter to them, that problem hadn't gotten much better. In fact, there's some indication that it actually had gotten worse. And the whole subject is idleness and actually working. So let me ramble through, if I can, these four final thoughts, and then keep in mind that Paul used the word final, not me. All right, we'll have two more thoughts on prayer subsequent to these final four thoughts. All right, the first one is this, keep away from brothers who are idle. 
All right, so the problem at Thessalonica had gotten so bad that Paul had now arrived at what is often referred to as the final step of church discipline, which is putting distance between yourself and someone else. Now, he says this in verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And then in verse 14, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an entity, enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, this presumes... And you can tell from the address that was made to them in the first letter to the Thessalonians that there was a process that they had already worked through, that they were talking about people who had been warned on many occasions, your, your idleness, your, your not working, whether it's spiritual labor or whether it's physical labor. And in this context, it seems that he's talking about very specifically people who are sitting around doing nothing at all, that he's warning them against idleness and as he moves along in this process through first Thessalonians and multiple warnings he's saying you know when it all comes down if you've got somebody who just will not listen to the church will not listen to the scriptures not listen to and Paul even says as much if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter now again I I have to make a footnote here I've mentioned it in this series before but Paul's talking about his letter in terms of its apostolic authority which means that it applies to you and I. This is not the church has authority to tell you what job to take or the church has authority to tell you uh, goofy stuff about your life. He's talking about as pertains to the scripture, the authority of the church. And ultimately when you develop elders in a church, they collectively have an authority to guide the church as it pertains to the scriptures. All right, and so the church really has no uh, leadership uh, capacity in your church, but that you are willing to allow them to have, and in particular as its results in, with regards to the obedience to the word of God. And so Paul is saying, we've made this very clear. This is something that you have to do. You cannot be idle. And, and if someone has been told on multiple occasions by leaders in a church, you're idle It's not good for you. It's not good for your family. And after uh, patience and a long period of time, they're just belligerent. There is a process, according to Matthew 18, where a person is confronted one-on-one, then they bring somebody else for a two-on-one encounter, and then you go to the church and you meet with the leaders of the church and you say, this person, Chuck, has a serious issue here that he's not listening to the church about. And at that point, if Chuck turns his nose up at the church leadership, then the church leadership is told, Now it's time to put some physical distance between yourself and this person. They've got to understand the weight of their disobedience. It's not something you do quickly. It's not something you do haphazardly. And it's certainly not something that an individual person, an individual elder, an individual pastor gets involved with. This is a process that accumulates or culminates with a collective of mature believers coming to somebody and saying, This is an area of your life that is severe enough. We're worried about you enough. We care about you as a brother or a sister enough that we're going to come into your life and we're going to speak to this issue. And we implore you to listen. We're told that at that stage, when somebody is doing something destructive, that at a certain point you have to put up your hands and say, you know, I really got to let you go your own way. 
The second admonition from Paul is to follow the example of believers who work hard not to be a burden to others. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked hard day and night, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in and ourselves an example to imitate, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, Paul functioned as a church planter in much the same way that modern church planters like myself do. And that is that you work bivocationally so as to not be an, a burden on the church. And this is an appropriate day, I think, to share this with you all because next week our, our mid-year budget update comes up and we find out where our church is fiscally. And, and, and I also I want you, my friends, to understand, and sometimes I think that we haven't, I haven't, and I say we, it's the, ro- it's the royal we, I haven't done a good job of communicating how our church actually functions. And it seems appropriate in this text and in this context to, to share that. We, as do many church planters, the, you, you end up taking on extra jobs. Uh, as it is right now in the third, really the third year of operation for Prism Church, the church pays half of what we would pay a senior pastor to be the pastor of a church. And I'm responsible to raise my support like a missionary or work part-time for any other needs that I have. And so I go to graduate school, and I teach at Providence Christian College, and I have a support team of friends and family from around the country that send money to our church every month to cover the other half of what it takes for me to live here in inexpensive Southern California. So what, what that means is simply that this is part of the call of a church planter. The goal is to not be an undue burden. But at the same time, uh, it is important for all of us collectively to understand where we are headed in that regard. And that is that the, the senior pastor, and let's talk about him in the third person here because it seems less completely self-obsessed for me to do it that way. It's, it's imperative that we as a church get to a place where our senior pastor's salary is paid because there are two things that have to be in place for a church to... Three things, I'm sorry, that have to be in place... For a church to be able to function beyond, function in a healthy way beyond the life of the, of the planting pastor. All right? Three things have to be in place. And this is just this is extra biblical. This is just from my own experience planting churches and being around church planters and having been fresh off a week of church planter training at the Acts 29 annual conference and everything that comes with that. Okay, these three things are the, the church has to have a clear vision for what they're doing. All right, so when the next guy, if I get hit by a bus and pass away, God forbid, and I know people hate it when I say that, but I don't ever like to talk about leaving because we don't want to leave and we don't have any plans to go anywhere, so I don't even like using that as like, if I was ever to leave, I, I'm not going anywhere unless God takes me. <laughs> you know, I like it here. So from my standpoint, what I'm saying is, is if I were to die, all right, and we say we need, to, we need to have a pastor. If we're going to hire a pastor, one of the things is we have to be very clear collectively about what we're doing here. We have to have a very clear vision. And that sort of falls on me and other leaders in the church to, care, to carefully describe what it is we're about. The second component of that is uh, we have to have leaders in place. And so, you know, I am working to develop and looking for and developing the idea of getting elders in place. It's a patient process, but it's a process whereby 
my prayer has been that by the end of 2014, we would actually have elders in place. We would have ecclesiastical authority so we can have members and everything that's associated with being a church. But the third part of that is, is you have to be able to pay the person who's coming in. So the, the person who would come in and replace the, the, the first pastor of a church, you, you have to have a clear vision. You have to have good leaders, healthy leadership. If those two things aren't in place, then it doesn't matter how much money you have. But it's very difficult to get anybody to come and take on an existing church if you know, they have to hear a really strange sort of spiritual, supernatural call you want to be able to be a self-sustaining church. And I can tell you, after interacting with pastors from all over the country and this retreat that Carolyn and I on, it's our annual Pastors and Wives Conference, was here in Southern California. They come here, and the absence of humidity at Newport Beach, um, uh, they're from all these obscure places around the world. Um, they love it here. And so if we have a clear vision and we have elders and we have the resources to pay a pastor, the easiest thing in the world we will ever do as a church is replace me. Uh, all we're going to have to do is put up a sign that says, hiring an Acts 29 pastor to come to Southern California, we can pay your salary, and you'll have a chapel full of applications. Lots of people are going to hear that call. And so from a... From a I think the Lord's calling me there. Yeah, I bet he is. I'm telling you, it's not going to be a challenge. Trust me. And, and, but for us, the challenge is to be in that place. And when Paul talks about you know, the, the, the encouragement or the challenge of a mission church, it's to be self-sustaining. And it requires that everybody in the church give. And it requires that everybody in the church not be idle. And this brings up our, our third Paul's bullet last point if you're not busy it's likely that you'll become a busy body so in addition to you know keeping the church alive if you're not busy you'll become a busy body paul says we hear some among you walk in idleness not busy at work but busy bodies now such persons we command and encourage in the lord jesus to do work quietly and to earn their own living some theologians say that when he uses the language, we hear that, it's really his way of speaking directly to some people in that category without naming names. <laughs> that Paul knew who he was talking to, and he was trying to be discreet. Now, if you're at home taking care of children, that is a full-time job and then some. I just want you to know, my wife, um, when she had the babies at home when she was young and, and, and I had a couple of jobs, I had it easy. Uh, staying home all day with children is exhausting. I don't know how anybody does it at all. I would much rather be a man, and I'm glad I am. Um, if you are home and you don't have kids, and my mom fits into this category. I mean, she's retired. But God hasn't given her permission to just sit around all day and watch TV. Uh, she's busy with charities. I mean, it's not likely that a 73-year-old woman's going to be able to walk down to the convenience store and pick up a job. So for her... She, though, is very faithful to the Lord in being busy. She does the work of the Lord. She helps out at hospice. She does all kinds of things to volunteer her time because it's good for her. It's good for her soul, but it's also good for everybody else around her because people that aren't busy start sniping at others. And the admonition of Scripture uh, is that we would be busy either as a volunteer or a paid employee and i have seen the devastating effects of a busybody man 
an unemployed man in the church. And, and it's not pretty. Uh, a man who is feeling threatened at his very core because he's not laboring to provide for his family. What he ends up doing is finding other missions in life. And one of the missions that comes with some of those gentlemen is, I'm going to make everybody else around me miserable by picking them apart. I've seen this on multiple occasions, and I have been, unfortunately, the victim of such a thing, too, in a pastoral capacity. This, this busy body, in this case a man, makes everybody miserable. And that's why we are encouraged finally in Paul's final, final thoughts to not grow weary in doing good. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And this is uh, very similar to what he said in Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are to the household of faith. And this is where prayer comes in. You and I must daily take up the human responsibility to pray. If we're going to endure, we're only going to be able to do so in the Lord's strength. We're only going to be able to do so in the Lord's power. We're only going to be able to be an effective mission as a church if we make prayer a priority. We, as a staff team, and there are some people in the church that are helping me formulate thoughts on all sorts of issues surrounding our church, and we're going to get better at certain things. We are. Our hope and our aim is to do that. In the next month or so, we're going to have better signage out there so that the kids can find a uh, the, their, their particular area of children's ministry. We're actually going to shut these doors and you're all going to have to come around to the front of the building because it's a safety issue for the kids. And so obviously we, we're trying to become wiser and better at what we do. I'd like to become a more proficient and more skilled speaker, preacher. Uh, I'd like my messages to be much more content laden and yet at the same time streamlined and efficient. And I want to get better as a preacher. But that said, the problem we have is not our technical expertise in any one particular area. Our church could be horrible at a lot of those things. And if we were prayer warriors, we would see this place packed full of people who were meeting Jesus for the first time. I know from my own life, and I know enough of you to know from your lives, that collectively this is something we just have to admit and confess to God that we don't do enough of. We are very dependent on ourselves kind of people. Prayer is extraordinarily low priority, and it's something that has to change because God is going to put us up against some challenges that are not going to go away unless you and I begin to call out to him for the divine assistance that our, is, is his to give and ours to need. Charismatic churches are often criticized by theologically orthodox churches. But they see some miraculous things take place, not because their theology is accurate, but because their posture is. I mean, these are people that take prayer seriously. I came to Christ, as many of you did, in churches where you would not necessarily send anybody. You would say, theologically speaking, I disagree with them. But I came to Christ there, and I can tell you in the church I came to Christ in is because these people were hardcore about prayer. 
God moved in my heart. I didn't know at age 18, what is the theology of this church? I was just like, I need Jesus. And, and I met him there. So the, the missing component for so many churches, and this is some of what I took from our week in Newport, the missing component in our churches often is our, our complete and total dependence on the power of God. We have taken up this on our own, and we've ceased to be a people that seek the Lord in prayer. And this is going to be the last couple of points, the real final, final points of our study in Thessalonians. Our study in Thessalonians has been titled Persevering Through Persecution. And this is what they were up against. And the bottom line for them is you have to be praying a lot for that to work. And if the cultural trends and, and the things that we're going to face as people who believe in the resurrected Christ and his supremacy uh, and, the, and the scriptures, uh, we're going to need the Lord's presence in a powerful way to be able to endure. Two quick thoughts. And quick is another one of those words that you've got to be careful to use in sermonizing as well. I recognize that, and I have my clock right in front of me, so I know exactly what quick means for those of you who are watching as well. First is this, prayer fuels the message of God. We're going to concentrate on the first five verses in closing. There's another one. That'll kill you too. In closing, for the last 15 minutes, if you want to watch the clock of our sermon, we're going to go over two points from the first five verses. Let me read the five verses again as we look at the first of these two points and that prayer fuels the message of the gospel. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as it happened with you. And then down in verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. The mission of the church is only possible through our complete and total dependence on the Holy Spirit's movement in our midst as we proclaim the word of the Lord. I was thinking about this this morning as I was praying. And I wanted to say this out loud because it shouldn't shock any of you. If you had any idea how broken I was, you'd spend your Sunday mornings praying before you came to church. In other words, if you had any notion of how just like you, in many ways, your pastor is, and that is true if you went here, you went to Lake Avenue, or you went to Sierra Madre Congregational, or any number of great churches. If you had any comprehension of just how broken and fallen your pastor is, you'd be kind of surprised that God was planning to deliver his word through the messages of scripture given by pastors. I mean, this requires the supernatural movement of God. It is not sufficient for you and I to just sit and listen to me. We, we need to hear from him, and I have whatever, the role of being the, the, the mouthpiece through which this word is spoken to our church. And without ears to hear, without eyes to see, we're probably not going to get what we need. We, we need to come prepared. This is another thing charismatic churches do so well is they come with a sense of anticipation, not that, wow, is Chuck going to be funny today? But isn't it going to be miraculous that I might actually hear from God today in spite of the fact that Chuck is the one delivering the message? This is the miracle of the gospel. I was reading about Jennifer Lopez going out with friends and buying bottles of Cristal at the, you know, I think it's two $300 a pop for, these, for this bottle of champagne, and they'd go through 100 bottles of it at a night or something like that. And that kind of money is incomprehensible to me. But I was thinking to myself, 
You know, I would think that it would be somewhat of an outrage to J-Lo and her entourage if they poured this cristal into the plastic pitchers that we have for lemonade at our house and brought them to the table. So here's your cristal, a scratch, nasty-looking pitcher. They'd probably require that it come in the bottle and you'd pop it right in front of them. I mean, that would be what would happen. You wouldn't expect the finest of champagnes to be served in the, in the, like the cruddiest of, of vessels. And yet this is how Scripture describes the experience of being around the Word of God and having it taught in a church and having it learned in a, in a small group, community group, missional community, whatever you want to call it. We're talking about the miraculous impartation of truth and reality. And it's not the person, it's the content it's certainly not this picture, this plastic, gnarly, old picture in front of you. It's the crystal of the Word of God. It is the highest and finest of, of realities for you and I. And we need to stop looking at the shell, and we need to start thinking, Lord, pour me life-giving water. The Bible calls it in jars of clay. That band that played a few years ago, it was a Bible thing. Anyway, but the reason jars of clay are so significant is because do you know what clay is? It's just mud. There's an overabundance of that. You could have a whole house full of jars of clay. It's, it's cheap. It's easy. It's actually sort of low rent. So the idea that you'd bring this life-giving water in these jars of clay is, is unthinkable. But this is what we're talking about, and this is why it requires prayer. It requires me to pray. It requires you to pray. It requires us to pray. Oh, Lord, if we're going to change, if you're going to move in us, if you're going to move in our midst, the message of the gospel is only going to get forwarded by prayer. Paul starts his letter to the Thessalonians, if you can remember, nine weeks back. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he concludes that first letter to the Thessalonians. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good with one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. I want to stay there for a second, see if you guys can enjoy that one. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. PRISM's mission is to revive believers, to reach friends, renew culture. I hope you're getting that, because until somebody comes up to me and says, listen, if you mention revive believers, reach friends, and renew culture one more time, I'm going to hit you. I'm going to keep saying it. I really think it's imperative for all of us to be very clear. It's one of the three things that we have to work together to develop. Why are we here? Uh, are you a Christian that lacks zeal to pursue a relationship with God? Do you lack passion for his word? Are you battling a besetting sin that you continually get entangled by? Do you wish you could comprehend the love of God in such a way that you'd love him more? Do you desire to... See who God is more clearly and experience, and experience him more in this life. If these are for you, then we're saying mission one for us is reviving the believer. And guess what, friend? This type of spiritual revival only takes place when we pray for it and ask God for it and the Spirit does it in us. We cannot manufacture this. I know we're not a charismatic church, but can somebody please say an amen there for me? I mean, that's the truth, friend. I know. 
I know personally, and I know you know too, you can't manufacture will to seek God. This is something that gets born through prayer. Oh, God, I don't have a hunger for your word. Give me hunger for your word. Oh, Lord, I don't have hunger for holiness to please you. Help me to see that you love me so that I will want to love you back. These are things God does, and the reason he does them is because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Philippians 1.6. Do you have a friend or a family member that you want to come to know the grace and love of Jesus, to be at peace with God, to actually enjoy the faith they say they may even have? Are you someone yourself who's been contemplating becoming a Christian, but you can't seem to take that step of faith once you do get the answers that you're looking for? The scriptures say that this type of spiritual rebirth only happens as we pray for God's spirit to bring it about. You want to see a friend or a family member come to know Christ? I have to ask myself and you, how much time have we spent on our knees asking God for it? I mean, are we, do we really want to see people come to know Jesus in our experience? Prayer is going to be the means of that. Do you have a desire to do a good work for the kingdom of God but lack the resources to do it? Do you wish you could serve the Lord in some capacity but seem to have no opportunity to do so? Are you a church that would like to start an evening service but you don't have enough people in your morning service to be able to do an evening service too? That's us. I would love to see us do a Sunday night service here. But frankly, until enough people are here on Sunday mornings, it's not realistic for us to think about having 20 people go from this crowd because if we take 20 people out of this crowd and put it on Sunday night, that will leave Carolyn and I. And so... We're going to have to wait on the Lord for him to raise up more people who want to worship him and follow him and seek him. But this is something I say, I can't do this. I can't manufacture this. I know what we want to do. I know parts of the mission and the direction we're going. But almost all of the steps that we need to take next as a church are dependent on God moving. This type of spiritual renewal only takes place when we pray and God allows it. And that's why I'll go back to Matt's announcement. We need somebody other than just the staff on our church to take a leadership role in the notion of how we pray together. We do prayer and fasting three times a year. We'd like to do so in such a way that engaged you creatively, and we'd like you to zealously participate in this with us. But we don't necessarily feel like it's always our responsibility to do all of that. And I would ask you to plan on joining us in early September when we mention it. Prayer fuels the message of the gospel, the second thing. And, ladies and gentlemen, I can officially tell you the final thing is that prayer fortifies the manner of the gospel. In, in verse 2 of 2 Thessalonians 5, it says that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. The essence of our study, as I said before, is that the Thessalonians had been persevering through persecution. And what makes this challenging is that Christians are told by their Savior to pray for our enemy. Christians are not permitted to strike back, but instead we are told to follow the example of Jesus who prayed as he was being crucified, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. If the culture and the media wants to pick on a religious group, the easy, the weak kid on the lot, the kid who's not going to fight back is the one they're going to go after, which is the Christian, because we've been told by our Savior we're not allowed to turn around and be vengeant back. We're not supposed to be. 
I mean, there are crazies all over the country that are doing some of that. But I want you to know the, the response of the Christian is supposed to be one that's charitable and prays for those who persecute them. Unlike other religions, we're disallowed from retaliating through terror. I mean, we're discouraged from doing that. We're commanded not to do that. How hard is it to pick on a Christian who's following Jesus? I mean, that's easy. But it's not easy for us. This type of endurance only happens as we fight this battle through prayer. And this is where Paul is saying, you know, we're dealing with evil. We're dealing with things that are wicked. And men who are being directed and empowered by their own flesh. You don't think the world's an evil place. I've had two encounters in the last two days that have just really saddened my heart. The first was a call I got from Zan, who most of you know is kind of our adopted son who lived with us for three years. And a kid that he and Nick grew up with and played football with. And I still remember Henry's face as just a little boy. But in a situation that's a typical urban environment where he was raised by his grandma and joined a gang and last week was shot to death in our hometown, Tallahassee. So I get this call from Zanny and he's saying, I love you, and I'm telling Zan I love him too. And, and I called their football coach and I think, gosh, this is real world stuff. Last night I was coming home from playing poker with the, some of the brothers uh, here at Prism. And as I was driving back to my house, I drove past this section of our city where this very loud party was taking place. And I drove upon two young men beating an old man, kicking his head. Not old, like old like me, old, but these were young bucks. Uh, if you want to know, I, I pulled up onto the curb where they were and laid on the horn until they stopped. And then I got out and helped this guy and waited for the police to come. But let me tell you something. The world we live in is an evil world. I mean, bad crap is happening. And the scriptures say that the devil, his job is to steal and kill and destroy, John 10.10. You are not neutral in this war. He's coming after you if you're a child of God. He wants to wreck your family. He wants to wreck your life. He wants to wreck your friends' lives. That's what he does. He wrecks people because he knows in the end he's down and he's trying to take as many with him as he can. And we are told we are in a spiritual battle with evil And this doesn't happen by the sweat of our brow. We don't fight this thing with human hands. Romans 12, 17 through 21, the apostle writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so as far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all, beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And his, his classic reference to the Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 10, 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, our enemies are not human beings. Our enemies are our flesh, our own sinful nature. 
and the powers and the principalities that rule this dark world. And this spiritual battle is fought through prayer. We're called to play a part in God's design plan. And if you're a part you consider Prism Church your home, he has no other plan than to work through people and the local church to bring about the development and the furtherance of his kingdom objectives. In our particular case, the objective to have us get so excited about our own relationship with God that we begin to share it with friends and family and coworkers and then collectively begin to work in our culture so that people could see the glory of God. But the only way this really happens, the only way we have an effect, is if God's spirit gets involved in it, and the means of bringing about that is through our prayer. Personally, corporately, the reason that God has said to the Thessalonians, you are going to persevere through this persecution is because you are dependent on me alone. And the reason that's so important to God is not for our own, just for our own spiritual health, but in the end, we're not reading letters about a particular Thessalonian church that's persevering. This is about the work of God. This whole Bible, this whole thing is about God. This is not about superstars and people who make it well. And This is about what God is going to do in our lives. Our dependence on him is because of just that. Because he wants to be glorified in our midst. So let us pray that we'd be a church to that end. Our Father, as we conclude the look at your words to a particular church plant, Father, as we conclude this study of what the Thessalonians were told to do to be believers,